This is ARN. Decidedly Christian, distinctly biblical, and just a little bit nuts. This is Squirrel Chatter. And welcome to the Piney Woods, ladies and gentlemen. I am your squirrel, the host, coming to you from the ARN studios, high atop the tallest tree in the Piney Woods. Good to have you with us. It is Friday. Yes, it's Friday. There is much rejoicing. Oh, and a late night last night. I'm running on about six hours sleep, so I apologize if I suddenly do a Mitch, Mitch McConnell and just stop and stare into the camera. I'll try not to do that. <laughs> this is Scroll Chatter, a podcast dedicated to scripture, theology, history, current events, and whatever else I want to talk about. We webcast every Monday through Friday at 7.30 a.m. Mountain Time on Twitter, Facebook, and Rumble. And then the podcast is available wherever you find fine podcasts. Scroll Chatter is a proud member of the Christian Podcast Community. Head on over to ChristianPodcastCommunity.com. Check out all the great curated podcasts that are over there. Be sure to check out um, this week's uh, edition of Quest for Truth, where I was the guest. And I still have not listened, so I'm not sure how they edited it all together, but we'll have to find out. All right, what do we got coming up today? We have prayers from the Book of Common Prayer. We have a reading from John MacArthur's Daily Readings from the Life of Christ. And last night, Mrs. Squirrel and I ran over to Coeur d'Alene to watch the Essential Church movie. And so I'm going to talk a little bit about that today. So no Federalist Friday today. Today is going to be a review of the Essential Church. So that's what I'm, that's what we're going to be doing. All right. Let us begin, as is our practice. With the prayer of confession from the fifteen, oh, excuse me, the twenty nineteen Book of Common Prayer, we're not using the fifteen fifty two Book of Common Prayer today. Haven't used the fifteen fifty two Book of Common Prayer in months. Uh, we're using the twenty nineteen Book of Common Prayer, which closely follows the fifteen fifty two, gets back to the fifteen fifty two, a lot of the elements of the sixteen sixty two, and especially of the nineteen twenty eight Episcopal. Uh, prayer book have been rolled back by the ACNA in the 2019 Book of Common Prayer. Let us pray. Almighty and most merciful Father, we have erred and strayed from your ways like lost sheep. We have followed too much the devices and desires of our own hearts. We have offended against your holy laws. We have left undone those things which you ought to have done. And we have done those things which we ought not to have done. And apart from your grace, there is no health in us. O Lord, have mercy upon us. Spare all those who confess their faults. Restore all those who are penitent, according to your promises declared to all people in Christ Jesus our Lord. And grant, O most merciful Father, for his sake, that we may now live a godly, righteous, and sober life to the glory of your holy name. Amen. Grant to your faithful people, merciful Lord, pardon and peace, that we may be cleansed from all our sins and serve you with a quiet mind. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. All right, now our readings from our reading from Daily Readings from the Life of Christ by John MacArthur. 
And our devotional today is entitled, Selfish Anger Equals Murder. Everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court, Matthew 5.22a. Dr. MacArthur writes, From Jesus' own life, we know he does not forbid every form of anger. In righteous indignation, he twice cleansed the temple of its defiling, profaning influences. Matthew 21, 12 through 13, and John 2, 14 and 15. The Apostle Paul instructs Christians to be angry, yet do not sin, Ephesians 4, 26. Faithfulness to Christ sometimes demands that we exercise a righteous anger. Many of the current cultural trends, the surge of violence and grossly dishonest and immoral practices, and the unbiblical ideas promoted even within supposedly evangelical circles, need to be opposed with righteous anger. That's because such, good, such things undermine the kingdom and glory of God. Let me go back and repeat that sentence. That's because such things undermine the glory, kingdom and glory of God. The psalmist wrote, God is a righteous judge and a God who has indignation every day, Psalm 711. In his sermon, Jesus did not speak against legitimate righteous indignation, but against selfish anger towards someone for doing something against us, someone who's just rubbed us the wrong way. The word the Lord used for angry indicates a simmering anger that a person nurtures and refuses to let die. Examples of such anger are the long-standing grudge or the smoldering bitterness that refuses to forgive someone. This kind of anger does not want reconciliation and can become so profound as to be a root of bitterness springing up, Hebrews 12.15. Jesus says anyone who harbors such severe anger against another person is the same as guilty before the civil court of murder and deserving of the death penalty in God's eyes. Ask yourself, so are there names and faces that come to mind when confronted with this stark reminder from Scripture? Is there personal anger that needs instant removal from your heart? All right, good things to think about this morning as we head into the weekend. All right, well, as I mentioned last night, Mrs. Squirrel and I drove over the mountains to Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, where the Essentials Church was opening last night. We went to the 6 o'clock show. The The theater was not packed. <laughs> um, there were uh, a couple of large groups who obviously knew each other and had all come in together from various churches, I assume, around the area. Um and there seemed to be a lot of people waiting to go into the second show who knew people coming out of the first show. It was, it was almost like a, a hallway at a church outside on a Sunday morning between services as people passed their friends, some that went to the early service on their way out and some who are going to the later service on their way in because there was quite a bit of, uh, of familial uh, conversation in the hall between the shows. Um, I did not see anybody I knew, except on the screen. <laughs> Saw a lot of people I know on the screen, but uh, <clears throat> that's to be expected because I know quite a people at Grace, quite a few people at Grace Church. Um, but it was, uh, you know, it was, 
not not full. I would say maybe, oh, maybe a third full. But it was a Thursday night. Um, the official opening, it was kind of like an early show. The official opening is today, and today was the day that they had the big push. Hey, let's sell out the theaters. So um, if I didn't have a busy weekend and traveling on Sunday to go preach, we might have gone today instead of yesterday. But quite honestly, a couple of weeks ago when I got my tickets, I got the first show I could, and Thursday night was the opening, and so we went last night. And I'm glad we did. Good show. Well done. Well produced. I, I it it was it was uh, phenomenally well done. Um, Grace Church does have some very very talented people who put it together. Um, let me read um, just the synopsis from um, MovieGuide.org just to to lay the stage, and then I'll talk about it a little bit. The Essential Church follows, John, follows Pastor John MacArthur's church in Los Angeles, Grace Community, and its lawsuit against the California state government's lockdowns during the COVID pandemic. After the church refuses to shut its doors, the government fiercely resists their defiance. Two Canadian pastors, James Coates and Tim Stevens, encounter similar struggles and even face jail time for their convictions. Through these examples, the movie explores the importance of standing firm against persecution by government authorities. It also provides many cases of martyrs giving their lives to defend Christ's headship of the church. The Essential Church is exceptionally well is an exceptionally well-made independent feature. Excellent cinematography, music, editing, graphic elements heighten the movie's production values, give it a highly cinematic quality. The content is highly faith-oriented with biblically sound theology, featuring prominent theologians within the church as well as outside sources. Strongly anti-Marxist, the essential church directly exposes the corruption of leftist ideologies and the hypocrisy of government leaders for unconstitutionally infringing on First Amendment rights. No objectionable elements appear, but footage of violent protesters and discussion of martyrdom Warrant some caution for younger children. Again, that's movieguide.org. Not a website I'm familiar with. Um, I, I'm posting this because Bill Brandenstein shared it on Facebook this morning. And it's like, hey, there's a perfect synopsis to launch into our review of the movie today. Um, and yes, Bill was one of the people in the film that I know. <laughs> if you don't know, he he is the director of music or minister of music at Grace Church. Um, dear, dear friend. Uh, great guy. Um, so the movie was really well done. They interwove the the story of Grace Church's fight with uh, the state of California and the city of Los Angeles. They interwove telling that with some... Um, some of the uh, events that occurred in um, Scotland and England um, during the 17th century where the uh, you had the Covenanters in Scotland and then Puritans in England who resisted government control of the church. Now remember, we talked about this quite a bit because the English Reformation is a, a passion of mine. Um, 
when the English church broke away from the Church of Rome, it did so for political reasons. King Henry VIII wanted a divorce. The Pope wouldn't give it. The reason the Pope wouldn't give it was because um, the most powerful monarch at the time was the nephew of the queen that uh, Henry wanted to divorce. And so there was some political pressure not to grant the divorce. And so Henry, with the help of his friend, Archbishop Thomas Cranmer, devised a a biblical-based argument as to why the, the marriage was never valid in the first place and also why the Pope wasn't the head of the church and they and the Church of England broke away from the Church of Rome. Now, Henry was never doctrinally Protestant. He just wanted to be a popeless Catholic. He held to Catholic doctrine, he believed the, you know, he just didn't want to listen to the Pope. But his Archbishop of Canterbury, Thomas Cranmer, was very reformed. And Cranmer used his influence with the king and his position as Archbishop and the influence of his friends to start reforming the Church of England. Now, when Henry died, and his very Protestant son, Edward, became king, that Reformation accelerated. And that was when the 1552 Book of Common Prayer was written. Very nicely reformed document, um, but still a little uh, sacralist and still a little sacerdotal. You know what I mean? Um there, there was a, the, the concept of the church and state being blended, that's sacralism, that was part and parcel with the ideas, not just of, of Cranmer and, and, and his friends, that was almost universal in Europe at the time. Um, there had always been, you know, a, a, a close relationship between church and state, and they had, you know, some, some, uh, oh, they had some, you know, concepts about that, about how church and state were to operate together that were derived traditionally not from the, uh, um, not from the scriptures. But so you had this sacerdotalism. You also had a little bit of uh, of uh, um, oh, I just said it now. I can't think of the word. I'm, again, I'm operating on uh, uh, um, or sacerdotalism. Was, uh, sacralism is stirt chate <laughs> church state uh, 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 alliance. Um, sacerdotalism is that that religious practices impart a measure of God's grace. It's kind of a, a works-based legalism, and that's the that's the Roman Catholic system. You know, you go to mass, you go to confession, 
you you say however many you know our fathers and hail marys the priest tells you to say you give money to the church and this is all done in order to receive god's grace it's a workspace system and some of that got reintroduced into the church of england after um the death of mary tudor so the in short what happened very Protestant King Edward, son of Henry VIII. Um, you had, you know, that's when, when Cranmer and his friends threw off uh, Henry VIII's restrictions and really started to reform the church in England. Um, and that lasted until Edward's very young death. Upon Edward's death, um, Henry's eldest daughter, Roman Catholic Mary, became queen. She, um, you know, put hundreds of Protestants to death. That's how she earned her name, Bloody Mary. Um, she put hundreds of Protestants to death. She tried to return the country to Roman Catholicism, but she only reigned for a few years before dying herself, and her little sister, Elizabeth, half-sister, Elizabeth, the daughter of Anne Boleyn, became Queen Elizabeth I. Elizabeth was a compromiser. Um, I hope she knew the Lord, but she did not want a huge religious war in England. Now, after the excesses of Mary, the English decided they were done with the Pope. They wanted a Protestant nation. Um, and so Protestantism was reinstituted. And Mary uh, initially, or uh, Elizabeth initially, didn't go after Roman Catholics. But you had multiple plots by the Roman Catholics to overthrow her, which led to uh, Elizabeth actually killed more Roman Catholics than her sister Mary had killed Protestants. Two reasons for that, much longer reign. Secondly, everyone that Elizabeth had put to death had actively rebelled against her, whereas the Protestants that Mary had killed had simply been holding to their religious beliefs. Excuse me. So, you know, Elizabeth is not remembered as a bloodthirsty tyrant, whereas Mary is, because the people that Elizabeth had put to death had actually taken up arms against the crown. They were, they were rebels. So, fast forward. Elizabeth dies... James of Scotland becomes king. Um, James was a Protestant, but I don't think he was a Christian. His wife was a Catholic. Yes, this is King James of the King James Bible. Um, don't believe he was a Christian. Uh, he was very much all about James and the divine right of kings, etc. But James was a fairly good politician, and so he was able to... Uh, placate folks. 
But when King Charles the first came along, and uh, I, I I pointed this out when the current King Charles took the throne, England has not had very good luck with kings named Charles. Charles the first. He was all about the divine right of kings, and he was a dictator. And one of the things that he was dictating was how the church was to operate. And he was very much, he wanted one Church of England, one Church of England only, and that church was going to use his prayer book, the 1662 prayer book. Actually, 1662 is Charles II, so we'll get to that in a second. So Charles I was, you know, he was the one that was trying to force this, the, the, the one that took place in the, uh, it was the 1637 was, I believe, when the Covenanters started. And they talk about the Covenanters a lot, the Scottish Covenanters. The, the king had put forth a, a law that, the Church of Scotland, which was Presbyterian, not Episcopalian, different form of church government, was to become Episcopalian and follow the Church of England's Book of Common Prayer. That caused a revolt in Scotland, and a group of people, a large group of people, signed a covenant, it was called the National Covenant, that said basically... Jesus, not King Charles, is head of the church. The government has no authority to tell the church how to worship. And this led to a series of persecutions in Scotland. And, and many covenanters were put to death. And it says the, the, the documentary talked about this quite a bit. And so... You know, covenanters were hung, covenanters were drowned, covenanters were shot, um, and we don't have an exact number. I actually have in my church history section behind me here a two-volume history of the covenanters that I bought over a year ago that I haven't read yet. <laughs> that's, that's on my, hey, I want to know more about this list. So the covenanters were talked about because they resisted King Charles I in Scotland. Then, King Charles I was eventually overthrown by the Puritans, Oliver Cromwell. He was beheaded um, for treason against the English people. They said he wasn't a good guy. And Oliver Cromwell and the Puritans ran England for a while until Cromwell died, and there wasn't a... Um, there wasn't a, uh, um, the, 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 it was at that time on paper, at least <laughs> England was supposed to be a Republic, but they did not have the structures of government necessary. Um, and, and parliament, the, after Cromwell died, the, the Puritans, the, who had been, they had been, I mean, Honestly, it was they were they were governing by force in a lot of cases. There was they had expelled mem rightful members of parliament because the rightful members of parliament did not agree with the Puritan members of parliament. So you had like you know 
it, it was a it was a mess. It was a time of the, the the English Civil War and the aftermath during the Protectorate is a, a just a a messy time. Um, and understand that a lot of yes, it was you know the Royalists versus the Puritans, but it had a lot more to do with politics than religion. But after Cromwell died. The English Parliament eventually reinstituted the monarchy and invited Charles I's son to return from exile. This was Charles II. Charles II came in, assumed the throne, became a worse tyrant than his father. Um, but he is the one who, in England, not in Scotland, but in England, the 1662 prayer book is his. That was when the monarchy was reinstated. That is still the current prayer book of the Church of England, is the 1662 Book of Common Prayer. Kept a lot of Cranmer's stuff, but also instituted, reintroduced some other elements. And, you know, it's not exactly... Of course, there's no perfect human document, but it's not exactly a perfect um, prayer book by any means. Of course, the 1552 isn't perfect. The 2019 isn't perfect. These are all works of men. But he issued orders that all the churches in England had to absolutely conform. It was called the Act of Conformity. They had to absolutely conform to the Book of Common Prayer. Whereas prior to that, the Puritan pastors had, you know, used portions of the Book of Common Prayer, but they weren't dogmatically following the order of service in the Book of Common Prayer. Um, but when the Act of Conformity was passed, those who refused to follow the um, Book of Common Prayer were expelled from their pulpits. And over 3,000 ministers were expelled from their pulpits. And they began meeting in secret. You know, because you know, they, they, they were... They, the, the, here are some of the things that the, that the crown in that time forbid. They forbid the gathering of more, together of more than five people for worship. They forbid, of course, any unlicensed minister and an unlicensed minister. You had to be a member of the Church of England to be a minister, and you had been kicked out of the Church of England. You had no license to minister. So it was the government who determined who the pastors were, all of that. Well, that got, um, that, that caused the great expulsion. And that, so you had a period of time there until um, and I believe that lasted up until the Glorious Revolution. Um, as I said, Charles was not the best of kings. He was worse than his dad, who had been beheaded. And uh, England had not had good luck with kings named Charles, a, a, a proper warning for the current occupant of the throne of England. Um, but they had, you know, um, eventually... Um, William of Orange was invited to come in and become king in 
what was essentially a, an invasion, but it had so much popular support that it wasn't real. It didn't turn into a, a war. <laughs> it just, you know, they invited him in, he came in, took over, Charles fled, all that stuff. And, and that set, and, and William was William and Mary. You've heard of William and Mary. There's a college of William and Mary. Um, this was the, you know, Mary was a English princess, and that was the 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 rationale for inviting William and Mary to come in and and take over the throne, um, and thoroughly Protestant, and all of these restrictions were eventually lifted under William and Mary, but these two uh, incidences, the the. The Scottish Covenanters in the 1630s and the uh, Great Expulsion in the 1660s, these two events were interwoven into the story of Grace Church and their uh, fight against the uh, city of Los Angeles and the state of California, and basically saying that, you know, Caesar is not the head of the church. The government has no authority from God to tell the church when and how to worship. And that was the battle. And as we know, you know, James Coates and Tim Stevens went to jail up in Canada. Um, and all of these stories are told in the documentary. Documentary is right at two hours. I mean, it's, it's not a short documentary. Um, and, and a lot of the people that appear in it you know, that you had Ian Hamilton is telling the historical bits, especially about the Scottish Covenanters. There was another um, pastor, church historian, who told about the Great Expulsion, and I did not catch his name. He was not somebody I knew. Um, I don't know Ian Hamilton, but I know who he is. Um, but I did not know who the other historian was who talked about the Great Expulsion did have a lot of people whom I know in there. Daryl Harrison was in there. Phil Johnson, of course, was in there. Uh, Mike Riccardi um, played a big part in it. Um, and they talk about, you know, their path. But the, the path from going from, you know, we must obey the government to, you know, the government's overstepped its authority. We need to start resisting. Um, it was very well told. It's not, um, it's not braggadocious. It's not Grace Church saying, hey, look at us. Um, but it is the church saying we need to obey God rather than government. And so it, it had, I thought it was, it was very well done, very, you know, uh, Vody Bauckham is in it. Um, he was talking about the Marxist uh, elements of the government that were dealing with the the lockdown and the crack up. And so much of the stuff, you know, as they were talking about the, the different rulings and the different things that had to be done and everything. And I'm watching this and I'm thinking, you know, a lot of these government officials now say, oh, no, we never did that. There, there, there's a, you know, the memory hole, 
They want to just stuff all this down a, down a hole and pretend it never happened. Um, but at the same time, as I just posted yesterday a video of Klaus Schwab's daughter, the next lockdowns, what they're setting us up for now is climate change. What they're setting us up for now is the government standing up and saying, hey, we need to take drastic action to stop climate change. Lockdowns, you can't have gasoline cars, you can't have, I mean, we've already seen, you can't have gas stoves. They're, they're, they're outlawing gas stoves in many places. There's, there's talk about you're going to have to get rid of gas heat, gas hot water heaters. All of this stuff is supposed to be done away with because of climate change. And everything has to go electrical. And we've talked about this. We don't have the electrical generating capacity to support everything electrically. It's also more expensive. Electric baseboard heat is the most expensive heat you can put in a home as far as operating costs. It's cheap to install. <laughs> it's much cheaper than a furnace to install. But boy, it's much more expensive over time. It's the most expensive. You know, just watch your electric bills. But they want to get rid of air conditioning. They want to get rid of, of you know, gas heat, gas stoves, gas hot water heaters, all of that. And the next step is to do this by government coercion. So the, the, the next lockdown, the next crisis that's going to require these draconian government measures is going to be climate change. And Klaus Schwab's daughter said that in a video clip I tweeted out yesterday. So we know it's coming. You know, the Great Reset is not fiction. <laughs> they openly talk about it. It's on the World Economic Forum website. That stuff's coming. But I wanted to read the uh, the document that Grace Church released when they, in July of 2020, when they said, hey, we are not locking down anymore. We're opening the church back up. And this is the, the and, and one of the interesting things, and I knew this because I had friends there. And so I knew that the church was starting to fill up on Sunday mornings. One of the things that I noticed, because we were watching the, the live stream, um, our church wasn't meeting. Um, a lot of churches weren't meeting um, with these lockdowns. And... Some churches opened back up. And yeah, there were a few churches that never closed. And praise God for them. Most of us were like, you know, I mean, when the, the first stories of COVID came out, the, the predictions were terrifying. And so we were all wondering, is this it? Is this, you know, mass die-off coming? Of course, it never did. But you know, in the beginning, we were all like, hey, as, as John MacArthur says in the movie, which was a really good point. He says it, it, would, it was like if the weather service came and said, there's a hurricane coming. And the hurricane's supposed to hit on Sunday morning. But you don't have church. You send everybody to shelter or you evacuate. 
because you've got this massive weather event that is going to threaten people's lives. He said that, you know, nobody would, nobody would condemn a church for failure to meet on the morning a hurricane was sweeping through their town. Or you have a tornado warning in the middle of the church. Yeah, you know, let's we'll all go down to the basement because there's a tornado coming. You know, that nobody's going to condemn the church for not meeting under those conditions. And that was the initial thought was we've got something awful happening that's threatening a lot of lives. We need to, you know, take the reasonable precautions that the government is putting forward not realizing that those precautions were not reasonable and not based on science, but on something else entirely. So that was the initial thing. But after a few weeks, it became very clear that nobody, you know, that A, none of the people who were saying all this stuff from Washington and from Sacramento and and all of the state governments, none of them really believed it because they weren't doing it themselves. Remember all the, the pictures of, of, uh, of these politicians who were trying to keep us all locked down, going to private parties at restaurants and whatnot. Happened all the time. Or getting their hair cut or whatever things they were doing, um, they were doing in defiance of their own orders. And we saw that again and again and again and again. Um, the video clips of at the White House of the or at the health the the National Institute of Health and all these places where they're coming out to do a press conference and the long shot of whatever auditorium they're holding the press conference in where all the people come through the door together in a clump without masks on. And they put their masks on on their way to the podium to speak. They get to the podium and they take the mask off and talk. It was all theater. And it's, you know, it was only a couple of years ago. But watching the, the news clips and stuff in the documentary brought all that back. And it, a lot of stuff that you, you just forget about because it's been... You know, but they can't deny they did it. So, anyway, the documentary is very well worth watching. Um, as I when when they realized that people weren't, you know, that it wasn't the mass die-off event that had been predicted, people started coming back to church on their own at Grace Church, and the the church was not officially open yet, but it was, you know a thousand people on a Sunday morning. Um, and so they, you know, started talking about when and how are we going to open back up? Um, Tom Hatter, who is the head of security at Grace Church, retired LAPD and neat guy, really neat guy. Tom Hatter was in the show and he said, basically the word came down from the pastors that we're not going to turn anybody away. And indeed, the, there were large crowds of LAPD officers and their families on Sunday morning in the supposedly shut down church. And the reason they were there was everything that was happening in society, the riots and everything, 
they needed that spiritual grounding. Um, that was an interesting. I had not. I had not been aware of that. That uh, that they had all these uniform police officers coming to church on Sunday morning, not to cause trouble, not to spy out who's breaking the law, but because they needed that respite from the horrors of the world as the BLM riots and everything were going crazy. So, you know, you had the people coming back, but I remember watching the live stream because I was watching the live stream back then. And the first couple of weeks, you know, they had uh, um, the music was, you know, it was an empty room and they were just trying to have church as best they could. And then, MacArthur would preach. Um, but after a few weeks, they started playing best of music. And so they would play the video of a pre-shutdown worship service, music, choir, the whole orchestra, the whole bit. And then John would stand up and preach, and it would be a new sermon. But they would play video of an old worship service. And I remember at the time thinking they're doing this because the church is full and they're really in there singing and having church on Sunday morning. Turned out I was right. <laughs> and and when John would get up to preach, they would tell everybody, now you have to be quiet. You can't make any noise. And so he would preach and there wouldn't be a sound from the congregation, but there were people there. And, uh, so that continued until they said, we've got to reopen. And they issued a statement. This is from the Elders of Grace Church. And they talk about the drafting of this statement and everything. But this is from the Elders of Grace Church. And I want to read it this morning. And this will conclude my review of the movie. Christ, not Caesar, is head of the church. Christ is Lord of all. He is the one true head of the church, Ephesians 1.22, Ephesians 5.23, Colossians 1.18. He is also king of kings, sovereign over every earthly authority, 1 Timothy 6.15, Revelation 17.14, Revelation 19.16. Grace Community Church has always stood immovably on these biblical principles. As his people, we are subject to his will and commands as revealed in Scripture. Therefore, we cannot and will not acquiesce to a government-imposed moratorium on our weekly congregational worship or other regular corporate gatherings. Compliance would be disobedience to our Lord's clear commands. Some will think such a firm statement is inexorably in conflict with the command to be subject to governing authorities laid out in Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2. Scripture does mandate careful, conscientious obedience to all governing authority, including kings, governors, employers, and their agents. In Peter's words, not only those who are good and gentle, but also those who are unreasonable, 1 Peter 2.18. Insofar as government authorities do not attempt to assert ecclesiastical authority or issue orders that forbid our obedience to God's law, their authority is to be obeyed whether we agree with their rulings or not. In other words, Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2 still bind the conscience of individual Christians. We are to obey our civil authorities as powers that God himself has ordained. However, 
While civil government is invested with divine authority to rule the state, neither of these texts, nor any other, grants civil rulers jurisdiction over the church. God has established three institutions within human society, the family, the state, and the church. Each institution has a sphere of authority with jurisdictional limits that much must be respected. A father's authority is limited to his own family. Church leaders' authority, which is delegated to them by Christ, is limited to church matters. And government is specifically tasked with the oversight and protection of civic peace and well-being within the boundaries of a nation or community. God has not granted civic rulers authority over the doctrine, practice, or polity of the church. The biblical framework limits the authority of each institution to its specific jurisdiction. The church does not have the right to meddle in the affairs of individual families and ignore parental authority. Parents do not have the authority to manage civil matters while circumventing government officials. And similarly, government officials have no right to interfere in ecclesiastical matters in a way that undermines or disregards the God-given authority of pastors and elders. When any one of these three institutions exceeds the bounds of its jurisdiction, it is the duty of the other institutions to curtail that overreach. Therefore, when any government official issues orders regulating worship, such as bans on singing, caps on attendance, or prohibitions against gatherings and services, he steps outside the legitimate bounds of his God-ordained authority as a civic official and arrogates to himself authority that God expressly grants only to the Lord Jesus Christ as sovereign over his kingdom, which is the church. His rule is mediated to local churches through those pastors and elders who teach his word, Matthew 16, 18-19, 2 Timothy 3, 16-4-2. Therefore, in response to the recent state order requiring churches in California to limit or suspend all meetings indefinitely, we, the pastors and elders of Grace Community Church, respectfully inform our civic leaders that they have exceeded their legitimate jurisdiction and faithfulness to Christ prohibits us from observing the restrictions they want to impose on our corporate worship service. Said another way, it has never been the prerogative of civil government to order, modify, forbid, or mandate worship. When, how, and how often the church worships is not subject to Caesar. Caesar himself is subject to God. Jesus affirmed that principle when he told Pilate, You would have no authority over me unless it had been granted you from above. John 19.11 And because Christ is head of the church, ecclesiastical matters pertain to his kingdom, not Caesar's. Jesus drew a stark distinction between those two kingdoms when he said, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Mark 12.17 our Lord himself always rendered to Caesar what was Caesar's, but he never offered to Caesar what belongs solely to God. As pastors and elders, we cannot hand over to earthly authorities any privilege or power that belongs solely to Christ as head of his church. Pastors and elders are the ones to whom Christ has given the duty and the right to exercise his spiritual authority in the church. 1 Peter 5, 1-4, Hebrews thirteen seven and 17. And Scripture alone defines how and whom they are to serve, 1 Corinthians 4, 1-4. They have no duty, 
to follow orders from a civil government attempting to regulate the worship or governance of the church. In fact, pastors who cede their Christ-delegated authority in the church to a civil ruler have abdicated their responsibility before the Lord and violated the God-ordained spheres of authority as much as the secular official who illegitimately imposes his authority upon the church. Our church's doctrinal statement has included this paragraph for more than 40 years. We teach the autonomy of the local church, free from any external authority or control, with the right of self-government and freedom from the interference of any hierarchy of individuals or organizations, Titus 1.5. We teach that it is scriptural for true churches to cooperate with each other for the presentation and propagation of the faith. Each local church, however, through its elders and their interpretation and application of scripture, should be the sole judge of the measure and method of its cooperation. The elders should determine all other matters of membership, polity, discipline, benevolence, and government as well. Acts 15, 19-31, Acts 20, 28, 1 Corinthians 5, 4-7, 1 Corinthians 5, 13, 1 Peter 5, 1-4. In short, as the church, we do not need the state's permission to serve and worship our Lord as he commanded. The church is Christ's precious, precious bride, 2 Corinthians 11, 2, Ephesians 5, 23, and 27. She belongs to him alone. She exists by his will and serves under his authority. He will, not, he will tolerate no assault on her purity and no infringement of his headship over her. All of that was established when Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Matthew 16:18 Christ's own authority is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named not only in this age but also in the one to come and God the Father has put all things in subjection under Christ's feet and gave him as head over all things to the church which is his body the fullness of him who fills all in all Ephesians 1:21 through 23 Accordingly the honor that we rightly owe our earthly governors and magistrates, Romans 13.7, does not include compliance when such officials attempt to subvert sound doctrine, corrupt biblical morality, exercise ecclesiastical authority, or supplant Christ as head of the church in any other way. The biblical order is clear. Christ is Lord over Caesar, not vice versa. Christ, not Caesar, is head of the church. Conversely, the church does not in any sense rule the state. Again, these are distinct kingdoms, and Christ is sovereign over both. Neither church nor state has any higher authority than that of Christ himself, who declared, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Matthew 28.18 Notice that we are not making a constitutional argument. Even though the First Amendment of the United States Constitution expressly affirms this principle in its opening words, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. The right we are appealing to was not created by the Constitution. It is one of those unalienable rights granted solely by God, who ordained human government and establishes both the extent and limitations of the state's authority. Romans 13, 1-7 Our argument, therefore, is purposely not grounded in the First Amendment. 
It is based on the same biblical principles that the amendment itself is founded upon. The exercise of true religion is a divine duty given to men and women created in God's image. Genesis 1, 26 and 27, Acts 4, 18 through 20, Acts 5, 29, Matthew 22, 16 through 22. In other words, freedom of worship is commanded uh, is a command of God, not a privilege granted by the state. An additional point needs to be made in this context. Christ is always faithful and true, Revelation 19.11. Human governments are not so trustworthy. Scripture says the whole world lies in the power of the evil one, 1 John 5.19. That refers, of course, to Satan. John 12.31 and John 16.11 call him the ruler of this world, meaning he wields power and influence through this world's political systems. See Luke 4.6, Ephesians 2.2, 2, Ephesians 6.12. Jesus said of him, he is a liar and the father of lies, John 8.44. History is full of painful reminders that government power is easily and frequently abused for evil purposes. Politicians may manipulate statistics and the media can cover up or camouflage inconvenient truths. So a discerning church cannot passively or automatically comply if the government orders a shutdown of congregational meetings, even if the reason given is a concern for public health and safety. The church, by definition, is an assembly. That is the literal meaning of the Greek word for church, ecclesia, the assembly of the called out ones. A non-assembling assembly is a contradiction in terms. Christians are therefore commanded not to forsake the practice of meeting together, Hebrews 10.25. And no earthly state has a right to restrict, delimit, or forbid the assembling of believers. We have always supported the underground church in nations where Christian congregational worship is deemed illegal by the state. When officials restrict church attendance to a certain number, they attempt to impose a restriction that in principle makes it impossible for the saints to gather as the church. When officials prohibit singing in worship services, they attempt to impose a restriction that in principle makes it impossible for the people of God to obey the commands of Ephesians 5.19 and Colossians 3.16. When officials mandate discipline, uh, distancing, they attempt to impose a restriction that a principle makes in, in principle makes it impossible to experience the close communion between believers that is commanded in Romans 16.16, 16, 1 Corinthians 16.20, 2 Corinthians 13.12, and 1 Thessalonians 5.26. In all those spheres, we must submit to our Lord. Although we in America may be unaccustomed to government intrusion into the church of our Lord Jesus Christ, this is by no means the first time in church history the Christians have had to deal with government overreach or hostile rulers. As a matter of fact, persecution of the church by government authorities has been the norm, not the exception, throughout church history. Indeed, Scripture says, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, 2 Timothy 3.12. Historically, the two main persecutors have always been secular government and false religion. Most of Christianity's martyrs have died because they refused to obey such authorities. This is, after all, what Christ promised. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. John 15:20. In the last of the Beatitudes, he said, Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you 
and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Matthew 5:11 and 12. As government policy moves further away from biblical principles, and as legal and political pressures against the church intensify, we must recognize that the Lord may be may be using these pressures as means of purging to reveal the true church. Succumbing to governmental overreach may cause churches to remain closed indefinitely. How can the true church of Jesus Christ distinguish herself in such a hostile climate? There is only one way, bold allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ. Even where governments seem sympathetic to the church, Christian leaders have often needed to push back against aggressive state officials. In Calvin's Geneva, for example, church officials at times needed to fend off attempts by the city council to govern aspects of worship, church polity, and church discipline. The Church of England has never fully reformed precisely because the British Crown and Parliament have always meddled in church affairs. In 1662, the Puritans were ejected from their pulpits because they refused to bow to the government mandates regarding the use of the Book of Common Prayer, the wearing of vestments, and other ceremonial aspects of state-regulated worship. The British monarch still claims to be the supreme governor and titular head of the Anglican Church. But again, Christ is the one true head of his church, and we intend to honor that vital truth in all our gatherings. For that preeminent reason, we cannot accept and will not bow to the intrusive restrictions government officials now want to impose on our congregation. We offer this response without rancor and not, and not, out, of our, and not out of hearts that are combative or rebellious. 1 Timothy 2, 1-8, 1 Peter 2, 13-17. But with a sobering awareness that we must answer to the Lord Jesus for the stewardship he has given to us to share as shepherds of his precious flock. To government officials, we respectfully say with the apostles, whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge, Acts 4.19. And our unhesitating reply to that question is the same as the apostles, we must obey God rather than men, Acts 5.29. Our prayer is that every faithful congregation will stand with us in obedience to our Lord as Christians have done through the centuries. Addendum The elders of Grace Church considered and independently consented to the original government order, not because we believe the state has a right to tell churches when, whether, or how to get how to worship. To be clear, we believe that the original orders were just as much an illegitimate intrusion of state authority into ecclesiastical matters as we believe it is now. However, because we could not possibly have known the true severity of the virus, and because we care about our people as our Lord did, we believe guarding public health against serious contagions is a rightful function of Christians as well as civil government. Therefore, we voluntarily followed the initial recommendations of our government. It is, of course, legitimate for Christians to abstain from the assembly of saints temporarily in the face of illness or an imminent threat to public health. When the devastating lockdowns began, it was supposed to be a short-term stopgap measure with the goal to flatten the curve, meaning they wanted to slow the rate of infection to ensure that hospitals weren't overwhelmed. And there were horrific projections of death. 
In light of those factors, our pastors supported the measure by observing the guidelines that were issued for churches. But we did not yield our spiritual authority to the secular government. We said from the very start that our voluntary compliance was subject to change if the restrictions dragged on beyond the stated goal or politicians unduly intruded into church affairs or if health officials added restrictions that would attempt to undermine the church's mission. We made every decision with our own burden of responsibility in mind. We simply took the early opportunity to support the concerns of health officials and accommodate the same concerns among our church members out of a desire to act in an abundance of care and reasonableness. Philippians 5.4 But we are now more than 20 weeks into the unrelieved restrictions. It is apparent that those original projections of death were wrong, and the virus is nowhere near as dangerous as originally feared. Still, roughly 40% of the year has passed, with our church essentially unable to gather in a normal way. Pastors' ability to shepherd their flock has been severely curtailed. The unity and influence of the church has been threatened. Opportunities for believers to serve and minister to one another have been missed. And the suffering of Christians who are troubled, fearful, distressed, infirm, or otherwise in urgent need of fellowship and encouragement has been magnified beyond anything that could reasonably be considered just or necessary. Major public events that were planned for 2021 are already being canceled, signaling that officials are preparing to keep the restrictions in place into next year and beyond. That forces churches to choose between the clear command of our Lord and the government officials. Therefore, following the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ, we gladly choose to obey him. That was the statement that was uh, issued when Grace Church reopened in the summer of 2020. Um, I haven't read it since then. I read it at the time. And I remember sitting and cheering. Um, and uh, shortly thereafter, I, I can't remember when it came out, uh, my friend Anthony, Anthony Forsyth of, uh, oh, what's the name of his church? It's in Burbank. <laughs> I preached there. I can't even remember the name of the church. But Anthony Forsyth wrote, a fabulous book called Caesar and the Church. Um, just a short little book. Highly recommend it. Um, matter of fact, I may, I may post a link in, uh, in the uh, show notes. Um, I'll post a link to that statement too. But um, if you are interested in seeing the Essential Church movie, and I encourage you to do so, head to EssentialChurchMovie.com that is the website. You can find out where it's playing near you. As I said, Mrs. Squirrel and I had to drive two hours to go see it. We had a good time listening to an audio book fiction while we were driving, just having a, having a nice, uh, nice drive over the mountains and into Coeur d'Alene. We had dinner at a, a little diner and went to the movie, ate way too much popcorn, and came home. Like I said, we got home about midnight last night which uh, is well past my bedtime <laughs> in the normal course of events. And my alarm went off at the same time this morning. It always does so that I could uh, sit here with you good folks. Um, so I, I do have a nap on the plan for some time today. It's been a little bit longer uh, podcast, but I really wanted to talk about the movie. I encourage you to go see it. Um, it... Uh, 
I will mention one thing that I found very jarring. During all of my visits to Grace Church up until the last one, and during the entire time in question in uh, 2020, the carpet and pew upholstery in Grace Church was red. Over the last year, they have remodeled the sanctuary. The pews have all been recovered. The, the, the wood has been stained darker, and the pews have been recovered with a dark gray upholstery. The carpet is now also dark gray. The um, uh, choir is now wearing black robes instead of red. They've completely remodeled. In the documentary... There are um, pictures of the empty sanctuary, which are, um, they, they don't actually say they're purported to be during the time. And they know they weren't because they're gray. So there was this, is it red? Is it gray? Is it red? Is it gray? If you see the red upholstery and the red carpet, you know that was the time when it was taking place. The, the shots of the sanctuary in the current gray livery was uh, taken very recently because, hey, we need a picture of the church <laughs> for the movie. Um, and that, that was kind of cute. That, that, that was like, okay, I'm just starting to get used to the gray. Um, just from watch, I, I watched the Sunday services from Grace. I don't normally catch them on Sunday, but I do watch them when they post the videos quite often. Um, I always think it's my, it's my second church. <laughs> I am, I, I, I know a lot of people at grace and it's one of those places that I am very comfortable being and, uh, and love it when I get to go visit. Um, so special place, uh, good documentary, well, well produced and, and just, lays it out. Um, it, it, it reminds you a lot of the things that were done that you had forgotten about, the BLM riots, the assaults on police officers, the whole defund the police debacle, and everything that happened in 2020. Oh, what a weird time. Um, but very good. And, you know, the sad thing is so many of those people are still in power in our government. And they will try this again, folks. They will try this again. They'll use a different excuse. Like I said, it's probably going to be climate change instead of some health disease thing. It'll be, we've got to save the planet. And you have to comply. Otherwise, you know, instead of killing grandma by exposing her to a virus, you're going to kill grandma by roasting her to death through your unmitigating, uh, unrelenting, selfish desires which are leading to global warming. It's coming. It's coming, folks. Decide now. Are you going to stand for it or are you going to stand against it? All right. Let us now recite our faith in the words of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. 
He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Now the colic for the eighth Sunday after Pentecost. O God, you declare your almighty power chiefly in showing mercy and pity. Grant us the fullness of your grace, that we, running to obtain your promises, may become partakers of your heavenly treasure. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. Now the colic for guidance. Heavenly Father, in you we live and move and have our being. We humbly pray you so to guide and govern us by your Holy Spirit, that in all the cares and occupations of our life we may not forget you, but may remember that we are ever walking in your sight. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. The Colic for the Unrepentant Merciful God, you desire not the death of sinners, but rather that they should turn to you and live. And through your only Son you have revealed yourself as the God who pardons iniquity. Have mercy on the unrepentant and those who do not believe. Awaken in them by your word and Holy Spirit a deep sense of their sinfulness and peril. Take from them all ignorance, hardness of heart, and contempt of your word. Grant them to know and feel that there is no other name under heaven given among men by which they must be saved, but only the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so bring them home and number them among your children, that they may be yours forever, through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, world without end. Amen. All right, folks, that is Squirrel Chatter for today. Um, I have, hope you have the best of days. Have a fantastic weekend. Make sure to get yourself to church on Sunday. Have a great weekend. We'll see you Monday. Remember to do the things you ought to do. Don't do the things you ought not do. Whatever you do, do it for the glory of the Lord. Take care. Have a great weekend. Go to church. Squirrel Chatter is recorded in front of a live studio hamster.